Amen. What a wonderful song. So good to be here this morning. A real special day for my family and me and so excited to be able to baptize my daughter. I baptized all four of my children right here at First Baptist and such a privilege to be able to celebrate with them in that way. I was uh, thinking recently about the pressure that parents deal with when it comes to naming their children. Because you think, when I name my child, they're going to be called this for the rest of my, their lives. So I better get this right, you know, and you overthink it. Rachel could tell some great stories about how I am such a holdout when it comes to naming the children. With Caleb, I waited until the day she went to the hospital to finally say, okay, we can name him Caleb. And then Andrew, I said, it's going to be when we see his face. And then I'll know if he's really an Andrew. And uh, it worked, and so he's an Andrew. But naming your child is, feels like such an overwhelming task. And sometimes I wonder what some people were thinking when they named their children. Some of you especially, I'm just kidding. But my, uh, my aunt, her father-in-law, my aunt who's right over here, my Aunt Janie, her father-in-law, his name is, uh, was R.S. And he would tell us that the R and the S don't stand for anything. They're just R.S. That's what the name he was given. And I always wondered, why would they name him just R.S.? Well, people asked all the time, what do the R and the S stand for? So he finally would just say, real sweet. That's what it stood for. And I'm sure it caused him some trouble. We called him Paul Paul. And so uh, whenever he was enlisting in the military, I'm sure around World War II, uh, he had to fill out the paperwork. And since people asked all the time, what does the R and the S stand for? On next to first name, he wrote R only. And then next to middle name, he put S only. And he was real confused when they were looking for Ronley Sonley because of the way that that turned out. When our son Caleb was born, a chaplain at Baptist Hospital came into the hospital room and met the baby, and uh, they said, he said, what's his name? And we said, Caleb, and he said, oh, what a great name. God's yes man. Joshua and Caleb were the two of the spies that were sent in to the land, the Canaan land, the promised land, to spy out, to see, can we really take this land? What are the people like? What's the city? What are the cities like? Well, all of the spies came back and said, we don't have to stand a chance, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. God's yes men. If God tells us to go, if God says we can do it, then we can do it. And so I've always encouraged our Caleb to be yielded to the Spirit, so that when God calls, you just say yes. Well, this morning we're going to look at what I think is one of God's greatest yes men in all of the New Testament. And so we're going to continue our series that we've been calling, This Is My Story, and we're looking at these biblical biographies because it's important to be reminded that everybody has a story. We all have a stories. The stories we consider from the scriptures are just as true as the story of your life. They're also not any more true than the story of your salvation experience in your own life. And so the essence of this series is to ask the question, what happens when God gets hold of a life? And if you have been redeemed, then you have a story to tell. And I can imagine that there are any number of people around you that are waiting for you to share your story with them. When's the last time you shared your story? I imagine there are people that need to know why you believe what you believe about Jesus. They want to know about the hope that's within you. They're desperate for the grace and the mercy that you've experienced. They too want to be picked up out of the pit and placed on solid ground. They want to have their life turned around. They're waiting on you to share your story. So what are you waiting for? 
We all have a story to tell. And for followers of Jesus, the central figure of the story is always the same. In fact, as you think about these biblical biographies, I hope you don't walk away and think, wow, what a great story. What I hope you walk away and say is, wow, what a great Savior. Because every time the hero of the story is Jesus. This morning we're going to turn to the book of Acts. This is the fifth book of the New Testament. And uh, that's the second part of the, the Bible. And let me share with you the context of where this story comes from. Of course, Acts is the account of uh, the church's movement after Jesus left the earth. So he's risen from the dead, he walks around for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. And Acts essentially gives us the spirit-filled account of the movement of the church. And so in Acts 6, the church has um, grown to a point that they are experiencing true growing pains. There's a complaint that comes up to the apostles who are leading the church, and they are pointing out that the Hellenistic uh, believing widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food because they're just caring for the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows or Christian widows. And so the complaint is registered enough to where they say, we got to do something, but the, the disciples, the apostles say, we can't neglect what we've been called to do. We can't neglect the preaching of the word. We can't neglect the prayers. So they decide to institute a new office, and it's the office of deacons. So they select seven who are to be responsible for this task and other tasks. And Acts 6, 5 tells us they selected Stephen, they selected Philip, and they selected five other men to go along with that. So you've heard of the twelve. This is what the scripture refers to as the seven. Now most of you will recognize the name Stephen from the list. He was the first Christian martyr. Uh, he stood out as a man of great faith. He was an incredible teacher or speaker. And it became a threat to many in the Jewish community. So much so they essentially brought him in and put him on trial. And Acts 7 tells how he preaches an incredible sermon. And he just goes all the way through of who Jesus is and how he fulfills these things, what he's done. And then he gets very frank with these leaders of the, the Jewish temple, the synagogue. And he's saying to them, you are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, they're threatened by that. And so this mob rises out. They push Stephen outside of the city, and it's there they start picking up stones, and they throw them at him, and they kill him that day outside of the city. Now Luke, in writing Acts, tells us Saul was around when this happened. Saul, who we know is Paul. And Saul approved of what was being done to Stephen on that day. And as a matter of fact, after this happens, Saul and many other um, zealous Jews rise up and start persecuting the Christians with such an incredible force that they are forced to leave Jerusalem. They've got to flee. They've got to get somewhere else. And so they scattered to many different places. And this morning, what I want us to look at is going to be in Acts 5. And this is the second of these seven named deacons. And what happened with him as God got hold of his life. Now you'll remember, he was in Jerusalem. He, sees, or he knows of Stephen being killed. And now the persecution is increasing, so he's fleeing. So look with me at Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read to you first, verses 5 through 8. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. 
For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Philip, this Hellenistic, that means Greek-speaking Jewish Christian believer, he goes to Samaria. Now, what do you recall about how the first century Jewish person viewed Samaria? Can you recall some of the things that you've heard as you've studied the scriptures? Maybe you'll remember that Jesus tells a story, a parable one time, that includes a good Samaritan. Do you remember this? And the, one of the shocking things about the story is the good one in the story is the Samaritan. Because Samaritans were looked down on so severely that nobody could imagine the good one was the Samaritan. On another occasion, Jesus is traveling north, and most religious Jews would go around Samaria because it was a land of half-breeds, and they weren't even going to walk through the land. But Jesus says, we're going through it. So he'd go through the city, and then to add insult to injury, he sits down by a well, and there's a woman there, and she happens to be a Samaritan woman. And then he talks to her there. So Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were outcasts. In fact, in John's gospel, when he comments about Jesus sitting with this Samaritan woman, he says in chapter 4, verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this is a serious barrier in the culture. But Jesus broke down that wall, and look who follows in Jesus' footsteps, Philip. And you should recognize this is exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. In Acts 1-8, Jesus gives his commission to those followers of his. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. So guess where Philip goes? He goes to Samaria. And Philip went boldly. And do you notice what he was proclaiming there? The scripture says he was proclaiming Jesus. And additionally, the Holy Spirit is moving in such a dramatic way that the Samaritans who are there see people being delivered from demonic possession. People that were paralyzed are all of a sudden regaining control of their bodies. Lame people are starting to leap. So no surprise here that in this city, those people are rejoicing. This is unbelievable. It's incredible. John Polhill writes, The gospel is the great equalizer. In the gospel, there are no half-breeds, no physical rejects, no place for any human prejudices. There is acceptance for all, joy for all. Now we have to point out here that the response is to Philip's message and not to the miracles. The miracles, the wonders, they undergird the message. They, they get people's attention. They say, perhaps this is true, but it's the message that has the power. So notice how Luke puts emphasis on their belief in Philip's message in verse 12 of chapter 8 of Acts. It says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So we are talking about the beginning of a true revival. Philip leaves because of persecution. He goes to Samaria and people hear the message and are being baptized left and right, one after the other. You can imagine word gets back to what's happening and Peter and John say, we've got to go check this out. Not only because there's this exciting thing happening in the church, but it's happening in Samaria. 
Is God really doing a work in Samaria? And then by God's providence, he withholds the pouring out of the Spirit until Peter and John arrive. In fact, it's when they lay hands on these believing Christians in Samaria and pray for them that the Holy Spirit is poured out. And essentially what we have is a second Pentecost. And this time it happens in Samaria. God's message of hope is global. It's as if the Lord wanted these leaders of the Christian movement, Peter and John, to see what he was doing. Well, this morning, what I really want to focus on, that was all intro, okay? I want to focus on Philip's second assignment. So what happens after he leaves Samaria? It's in verse 26. I'm going to pick up, and I'm going to read from there, verses 26 through 29 in Acts chapter 8. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up. And go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip is a true yes man for the Lord. Many of you know how influential Dr. Rick Milne has been in my life. Rick used to uh, talk about living on go with the gospel. And so what he meant by that is that we're not just to go as Christians on to mission trips. We're not just as Christians to participate in outreach projects. We are to live on mission. That means every breath, every moment of every day, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so that means in any moment, God could be putting somebody in front of us and we are to live on mission with the gospel. Now, Rick did not just preach that. Most of you know Rick lived that. And so very often he would share Christ with a patient and they would believe. He would go to get his hair cut and leave with the person responding to the gospel. He would sit down to eat and the waiter or the waitress would respond to the gospel. Whoever it was placed in front of him, he shared. And it was incredible how this worked out. Rick was a true lifestyle evangelist. He was a closer with the gospel. Many people planted seeds, but Rick got to see them bloom. He got to see many people trust him in one-on-one, -on -one, or trust the Lord in one-on-one -on -one encounters. And I think it's just that Rick made himself available to the Lord. It's a here am I, you know. And I think God knew he could trust him. So when it was that critical moment, the Lord could lead somebody to Rick because he knew Rick was not going to get distracted. Rick was going to faithfully give this person an opportunity to respond because Rick would just say yes when the door opened. I would like to say that I live the same way. But sometimes I am just as prone to talk about the weather or to talk about sports, or to talk about family, as I am to talk about the Lord. I am convinced that Philip in the scriptures was a yes man. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Samaria, and Philip says, yes. The Lord said, he sends an angel to say to him, go south towards the desert road leading to uh, Gaza. Philip says, yes. And I want you to notice this great mission was by God's initiative. It wasn't that Philip was trying to come up with these ideas. It's not like Philip is just pressing in and trying to make things work out. 
It's the Holy Spirit at work. And at this precise moment, he needed a faithful believer on the Gaza Strip. Who could he turn to? Philip. Philip, go down there. Philip says, yes, I'll do it. And he finds this chariot carrying an Ethiopian government official away from Jerusalem toward Africa. Now talk about barriers in the culture. Barriers between different people and places. The man in the chariot is an Ethiopian. So there is a racial divide. He is a black man. There's a dramatic cultural difference as well. The scripture says he's a eunuch. Many cultures would force deformity upon young men with the intention of using them in service to the royal family without having to worry about sexual impropriety. Well, that's probably what happened to this Ethiopian man. And he ends up something akin to the minister of finance or the secretary of the treasury. That's who he is. To the Candace. Candace is not her name. That's her title. She's the queen mother of Ethiopia. Scriptures also refer to that as the kingdom of Cush. And so he is in service to the queen mother. So Ethiopia, not Jerusalem. Ethiopia is not Judea or Samaria. I think from the Jewish perspective... In the first century, Ethiopia is the uttermost parts of the world. And so here, once again, Philip says, yes. The Ethiopian man has been in Jerusalem because he's likely a God-fearing Gentile. He has heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's drawn to the one true God. He wants to worship him. So he comes to Jerusalem to be able to participate in that. Gentiles could do that. They could also convert. To follow Judaism, but not a eunuch. Because a eunuch could go to the temple, but not go into the temple. There was a restriction because of the physical deformity. By God's will alone, this man who's traveling along this desert road in the Gaza Strip is reading aloud, as would have been the custom, from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit commands Philip, go join him. Philip says, yes. And he hears this man reading from Isaiah, and he asks him, do you know what you're reading about there? Do you understand what you hear, what you're, what you're saying? And the Ethiopian says, how could I? <laughs> you know, I need some sort of guide. Do you think you could come up here and help me? What does Philip say? Yes. So he goes in to the chariot. Now, the Ethiopian is reading about the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 53. In fact, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah's words. Isaiah 53, it'll be on the screen, verses 7 and 8. This is what Philip hears coming out of the Ethiopian's mouth. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So we hear that and we think, Jesus, well, what does this man think? Look at verse 34 and 35 in Acts um, 8. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. God has orchestrated so much of this interaction. He sends an angel to speak to Philip. At a critical juncture, they meet along the way, just as the uh, Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah. And now, guess what? 
they passed by a body of water. Verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? This man believed. He didn't just hear. He didn't say, that's, that's pretty incredible. He believed. And you can almost hear the enthusiasm in his voice. What are we waiting for? <laughs> There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Can you think of anything? Well, I can. The man is likely a Gentile. Is the message that Jesus has come for the Jew only, or is it also for the Gentile? So far, it's only been for Jews. So you can imagine that somebody might have said, ah, we're going to have to go talk to the committee about that, you know? But for those who thought that, sure, Gentiles can respond, turns out he's a eunuch. And I imagine that would have made them hesitate and think, ah, I don't know about this. We, we, we need to inspect that this might be an okay thing. Not only that, he's a black man from Africa. Does God's message reach, really? Is it a global message or is it more of a local thing? But Philip has no respect for these barriers. Many traditionally recognize Cornelius as the first Gentile convert. That's in Acts 10. When Peter gets this vision, he goes up to Caesarea. He meets with Cornelius, the centurion, who's a Gentile. He responds to the gospel. But I wonder here, <laughs> because Peter walked carefully, you know, didn't want to break the barriers. Not Philip. Philip just plows through him. He busts down the wall. He opened the door to the kingdom of God for what was likely an African Gentile with a single criterion. It's the same criteria for you today if you want to believe and you want to be baptized. Verse 37 says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The most ancient um, of good confessions that we know of. And it says in verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. I contend that the first converted Gentile is this, Af this Ethiopian who went on his way, which I think means he went back to Africa carrying the seeds of the gospel before Paul even made it to Europe. Praise the Lord. And you have to wonder, Philip carried the gospel to Samaria and the ends of the earth, so is the mission done. I mean, what would you have done? This incredible experience with the Ethiopian eunuch. Then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit snatches you away, whatever that means. Several miles away you appear. What would you want to do? I have got to go tell so-and-so. You're not going to believe it. And they wouldn't, right? Verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So Philip continues to preach as he passes through Azotus, which is in Judea, north through Samaria and up to Caesarea. What a man of faith he is. He pioneered the Samaritan mission. He paved the way for the Gentile mission. And he seems to have done it without the spotlight on him that Peter received or Paul received. He was content with just saying yes. We know he persevered. Acts 21 says when Paul's headed back to Jerusalem, he stays with Philip. Who's there? He has four daughters who have the gift of prophecy. So God gets hold of Philip's life and he boldly breaks down barriers to the gospel. So what I hope that you hear this morning is the key to being used by the Lord is simply by saying yes. He's not a high profile member of Jesus' inner circle like Peter. He just says yes. 
He doesn't have a dramatic conversion along the Damascus Road when Jesus speaks to him through a blinding light. Like Saul, he just says, yes. The churchy phrase for this is being yielded to the Spirit. That means you give God the reins. I like to use the imagery of raising sails. Because a sailboat is propelled by the wind. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, yielded to the Spirit, we raise the sails and let the Holy Spirit move us forward. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Philip was just so yielded to the Spirit that whenever God directed, Philip said yes. Many would have questioned the Holy Spirit. You really mean Samaria? Are you sure he's Ethiopian? He's a eunuch. Are you sure about all of this? But Philip's natural posture, posture before the Spirit was yes. Well, what's your posture before the Lord? I think the problem is that most people hold tightly to their yes. We're much more prone to say, are you sure, Lord? <laughs> you know, maybe somebody else, Lord. Or eh, not right now, Lord. We're so scared of how people might respond if rather than talking about sports, we talk about Jesus. We're too nervous that we'll get questions we don't know how to answer. We're afraid we'll mess up. Perhaps you're repelled by the barriers. You feel like, I don't have enough in common with them to share with them. I need somebody more I have a relationship with. Or you think, you know, if I get seen talking to a person like that, then my Christian friends will wonder what's happened to me. Or you think, you know, if I share with them God's grace and God's forgiveness, they'll think I'm affirming their lifestyle. Or that person is just so different, so lost that they're not going to be interested in hearing about Jesus. Philip was a wall-tearing down follower of Jesus. He was so yielded to the Spirit that everything else was secondary. I think maybe even just an afterthought. <laughs> the problem is I think that so many of us try to follow or live our lives. And following Jesus is secondary. And sometimes it's just afterthought. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to say yes to the Lord. And I think some of you know right now what it is the Lord is asking you. You know what you're supposed to say yes to. Some of you, it's just obedience because you've been walking in rebellion and you know it. You don't have to be told what it is. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's some relationship you're entertaining that you need to cut off. And you just need to say yes to the Lord in obedience. He's saying stop. And you say yes. For some of you, it may take, be taking some step of faith. You've prayed about it. You've sought godly wisdom. You've studied the scriptures. You've sensed the Lord leading you forward. But you're too scared to act. If the Holy Spirit is moving, would you just say yes and act in faith? Some of you know that the Holy Spirit has after, been after you for some time. You know you've been trying to earn your way to heaven. But you know the truth is that only Jesus can forgive. And you need forgiveness. And you recognize it's by grace through faith. And so today, if the Holy Spirit's stirring in your heart, would you just say yes to him? Others need to make the next step in following Jesus. Just like we participated in this morning in believer's baptism. You've believed, but you haven't followed in believer's baptism. Baptism is something Jesus commands. Did you notice how quickly the Ethiopian says, can I be baptized? Because the scriptures are so clear. That that's what we are to do. And we, it's not that baptism saves you. Only believers are to be baptized. After they believe. That's what Philip says to him. Well, if you believe, then you can be baptized. So search the scriptures. That's why we as Baptists dedicate our babies and wait to allow them to follow in baptism after they profess belief. So 
It's simply an act of association. If you've not followed in believer's baptism, would you say yes to the Lord today? In fact, we want to make that yes a little bit easier. So next Sunday night, 5 o'clock, we're just going to have a brief baptism service. And you say, I've needed to do that. I want to do it. Then go and decide right now. I'll say yes. And next Sunday night, you can do that as a part of one of our just quick worship services here. Some of you need to take the next step of joining the church, of joining a Sunday school class, of stepping into service. What are you waiting for? Every one of us needs to say yes to sharing our story. We're all on mission. Perhaps you just need to whisper a prayer to say, yes, Lord. Help me to recognize when you put that person in front of me this week so I can share with them my story. Some label Philip a radical because of the way that he lived his life. If you study the scriptures, it's clear the Holy Spirit is the radical, not Philip. He just said yes. His openness to the Spirit's leading enabled radical progress toward fulfilling God, uh, Christ's commission for global gospel. And I hope each of you this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us by television, will yield to the move of the Spirit in your hearts today. Our Father in God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and is still speaking. And God, I pray that in our own hearts, even now, we would say yes to you. That's the only proper response to the Lord when he speaks. So, Father, we pray now that you would bless this time of commitment and response. Pray, Father, that you would have your way in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. I've already extended it. You know what it is. If the Lord is speaking to you as your pastor, as your fellow believer, would you say yes? I'm going to invite you to stand. As you stand, our choir is going to sing, and you respond.